and welcome to the Austin Art Talk podcast. My name is Scott David Gordon, your host. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen, and I do hope you're enjoying the interviews I've been sharing. The focus of this podcast is on the interesting and creative people of Austin, Texas. As always, my intention is to have meaningful and in-depth conversations that I hope will be of value to you, the listener. They certainly are to me. I really love doing these interviews, and hopefully we can all figure out together how to better connect and support our local art communities and create opportunities and success for ourselves through conversations like these. You might have noticed, unlike many other podcasts, this one has no sponsors. For me, it's a passion project that I create and produce 100% on my own every week please consider helping to support me and my continued efforts by becoming a patron of mine. Go to austinarttalk.com and click on the support tab to learn more. And if you really love an episode and have a feeling it might benefit someone else, please share it with them. It might be exactly what they need to hear. Thanks to those who follow and interact with me on Instagram, at austinarttalk. That is by far my favorite social media platform. I post daily about local art events and try to support and share the work of previous podcast guests, along with other interesting people, art, and podcasts that I find which you might enjoy. On to the rest of the show. Tammy Rubin is a ceramic sculptor and professor at St. Edwards University. Since moving to Austin only three years ago, she has fully established herself in the local art community. While maintaining a consistent studio practice, she also teaches multiple classes, supports many other artists, is a member of ICOSA, and is a Dimension Gallery Fellowship artist. Her latest exhibition, Everything You Ever, on display at Women and Their Work, utilizes ball moss, wire, steel wool, and other elements as the base of the sculptures. We discuss in the interview the process of making the pieces, possible meanings behind the work, along with how she got into sculpture and teaching and many other subjects related to her artistic practice. Be sure to visit her website to see and read about all of her beautiful work. And if you're in Austin, make your way to Women in Their Work before January 10th, 2019 to see her solo exhibition. Here is Tammy. Okay, Tammy. Well, thanks for being on my show. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming by the the show again. Yeah, yeah we're at Women in Their Work, and you have a one-person, woman show up until January 10th. Yeah, it's a long show. It's long enough so people can miss it. You know what I mean? Because you think you have all this time. So. Oh, yeah. 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 Right. But so I don't miss it. So don't miss it. But uh, I also like that, uh, you know, you don't always get to have shows where you live and oh, yeah. see the show multiple times. So this is kind of really interesting to me that I didn't have to go to UPS or FedEx and I didn't have to get in my car and drive 2,000 miles. I could just... I just like drove it over here. Yeah. And also people I know, lots of people I know will get to see it. And then I also get to like spend time in this space. It's really unique. You know, sometimes it feels like you have this show, you send the work, you know, like oftentimes I don't even necessarily go. Oh, wow. Um, If you know, it's a group show or something and you see some images of what happened, but did it happen? (laughs) Like, you know, the tree falls in the forest like yeah, <laughs> nobody right. heard it so <laughs> so this is kind of unique because i get to have uh like feedback like real-time feedback from other artists and people yeah, who have seen the work so when i walked in you were here with jill schroeder from gray duck mm-hmm. and you guys were talking about the show that yeah that must be really uh interesting to get feedback actually that's one thing i thought of to ask you is like how much of a dialogue is there with all the artists that you're friends with that see your work and how does that affect your work? Well, you know, it's, it's changed depending on where I've lived. And so I feel like 
this is uh, my move to Texas is the first time that I've in a long time I feel like I've have such a community of artists that I can have those conversations mm. with you know it's really I think it can be really challenging because although you know you know other artists everyone is so busy you know we're all just we have so many things that we have to do yeah and to be able to cultivate some time to sit down and and have someone come to your studio and time works for them, time works for you. You've got enough work in your studio. You're ready to talk about it. You know, all these things have to coalesce for that to happen. Mm-hmm. So what I do think is kind of nice is that the show is up and it's done. And so therefore we can have a conversation. It's not like in the hypothetical. It's like, this is what it is. And yeah. so having those kind of conversations, I think it's really interesting. So, cause it doesn't happen that, you know, that often that I have a show where I live. Uh, a solo show, especially. So, now, how long ago did you move here? Fall twenty fifteen. Okay, it just seems like you have a lot going on right now. I don't know. You have this show. You're now a member of Icosa. You have this Dimension Gallery Fellowship. You just did the Cage Match Project, um, and you're assistant professor of sculpture and ceramics at Saint Edward's University. Okay. <laughs> It has been a challenging (laughs) semester, to be sure. You know, it's it's always the thing about the artists. Like, you never know when the opportunities are going to knock. And then when they do knock, they all knock at the same time. So you have these periods where, like, nothing's happening or you have these periods where everything's happening at once. So it's just definitely has been challenging, um, but great, too, because I feel like, you know, this... The Cage Match Project um, was a really different thing that I've never done before in my practice. Um, This element of working in the open, you know, parts of it playing with the performative, but also, you know, mostly like the kind of the process, it's things not being complete in that space. And then having this space, this show being the completion of that. So there's like a distance between the two. Mm -hmm. Um, And people who saw that got to like feel like that was kind of like we're on a journey with me maybe and it was now it's they get to see the end part of that journey Um, especially since it goes through so many kind of like iterations of how the work is made to get to this point where you get into the white cube right Mm -hmm. Um, and the cage is totally opposite of the white cube and so just thinking about that kind of journey and uh, like my practice and it's kind of been a it really kind of changed you know thinking about what like my proposal was I don't know, two years ago or a year and a half ago or whatever it was for women in their work. Um, the things that have happened in like my life and in the studio, like all of those are the, you know, kind of the same, you know what I mean? Like they're like, they're not separate from each other, which changes whatever happens externally happens and internally, like all changes my work. So yeah. that's been kind of interesting. So I want to interject for anyone listening that maybe is not aware of what kind of work you do. Uh, I really like this description from your website. You're a sculptor who transforms familiar and trivial objects into mythic relics, surreal, dark, playful, and sensual. Your works are intensely colored, technically complex, and intricately ornamental sculptural assemblages of everyday objects. Do you still like that description? I do like that description. <laughs> it's both specific and generic enough uh, yeah. to uh, to talk about multiple bodies of work. And yeah. so I think that everyday objects has shifted a bit as far as that, you know, originally they were um, like one-to-one, these industrial objects that were being transformed. And, you know, now I'm still working with, you know, something that it comes from industrial, but also has these other connotations. And now 
the organic. So in this particular show, the ball moss, um, steel wool and wire. And so these organic things that are being kind of drowned and like covered and then burned away. So I still feel like that they, they um, retain what the original was, but then there's something new. I think that there's an accessibility, like there's a way to like enter the work through familiarity, but also it's, you know, it's kind of off kilter because you recognize it and don't recognize it. And the way it it functions now is so different um, or the way that looks is so different. And Mm -hmm. the works are kind of like intimate in scale. So, you know, once you enter a space from being far away, you know, trying to, you know, our minds do this thing where they're trying to latch onto something that they recognize. Like yeah. automatically, that's what you're doing. Um, and so having like a thread, but then getting closer and having to get closer to really kind of immerse yourself. And sometimes that being really satisfying that you recognize and sometimes being unsatisfying. So it's the tension between those two. It's like the, I always talk about the tension between like the ready-made object and the handmade object. Is that what I'm really kind of playing with? So things that are, um, that exist, that are industrial, but then or domestic, and then taking those and then transforming it through my hands, which is going to be a different kind of material and also imperfect and also changes what the original was from the fact that it's now maybe even like absurd, um, even though it's uh, you still recognize that original form because it's a cast and the history of like what the object was and what it is now and the material because ceramics is uh, mainly the body of work that I work with mm-hmm. is brought into that new configuration as well and the history of that and how um, people view that work like what do they think of when they think about ceramics you know yeah. so there's even that tension between like oh so did you throw it like no it, are they plates? No, you know. So, like, what? Yeah, what yeah, is yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's. I, there's another quote from an interview. I think you did. You said, "Porcelain itself is itself a medium often associated with functional objects, but I loosen the ties of both porcelain and their original objects to functionality, opening up a dreamlike space of unexpected associations and dislocations." Yeah, I mean, I think that the kind of cone forms that I'm using, which are Everything from funnels to caution cones to uh, the dunce caps. dunce caps, the clan hoods to caparera, like the Catholic Nazarene Brotherhood that they wear. Um, all of those are basically the same in the fact that if you look at them geometrically, they're the same yeah. form, right? Yeah, but it's yeah. just like how you adjust them, you know, if they're uh, on their sides or they're upright or if they're reconfigured and kind of like... I almost think like three-dimensional kind of collage, like the meaning change, right? So like they're both separated from what their original function is, um, but then also, um, so it's something new. So you have like the tension between the both, but then also putting it into ceramics, like and specifically porcelain, which has this long history of being both very valuable historically, like there was called white gold at one point, mm-hmm. and then also being thought of as almost like a throwaway material, so hmm. it's something that, I mean, I think that if you go in a Pier 1 import, you can buy a bunch of things industrially made in ceramics and they'll be like $5 or $10, yeah, right? Sure. Um, but if it's handmade by an artist in their studio who's using the same material, you know, the price point is going to be more because like what it takes to make is going to be like the idea and the craftsmanship and all the knowledge that you have to um, acquire to be able to make it. And then also like the overhead of how to like the equipment that you need. It's such a multi-step way of working and there's 
things that you can control and things you can't control. And so it's a very humbling material as well. It's like humbling you through the process that sometimes you think you did everything right and you lose work. And then you have to just kind of like deal with that idea of like, just deal with the like the failure of that. And like, is it failure? Like, what do you gain from that for the next thing? So, I mean, this particular work was all about experimenting. This body of work was just all about experimenting for me to figure out how to take this organic material, how to dip it, and then how to keep both the like the individual nuances of the ball moss, this like the material, and then transform it into something that can be sculptural and moved, but then also like how it is going to interact as the sculptures are placed next to each other in this particular space and like how the weights of the pieces as they're put together once they're fired what happens so how to get the color to like do the things that I wanted to do so it's you know it was great because it I like to go into the unknown in my studio practice I never want anything to be just become like mundane like I don't want it to mm. become routine so trying to find ways to continuously um, push myself, even though I'm usually working with the same material, but that material can be used in so many different ways. And there's so much information like you continuously can gain through experimenting Mm. and then really trying to push it to do what it doesn't want to do um, is part of it. I'm kind of like a masochist, like, (laughs) like like it doesn't want to do that, but I'm going to make it do that. So, or what has to happen. So. Was there a moment when you first discovered ceramics that you were like, ah, this is my thing now? You know, it came, it, I think it was less the material at first, and it was more the um, experience I had with a professor. So oh, yeah. um, I didn't go to college to be an, or like an artist. I went to college because you're supposed to go to college. So yeah. it's first generation. But one thing I knew, I wanted to take art classes. So I went to like parochial school, Lutheran and Catholic school, and uh, sometimes like for religious classes, something's got to something's got to go. So I, I didn't have a lot of art classes, yeah. but I always loved when I did have art classes. Mm. And I really feel that I grew up in Chicago and the Art Institute was like my favorite place to go. And so if we went on field trips or if I had my parents take me and then old enough, I was able to take myself it's just like a place that I would want to spend time and like explore. So I knew when I went to school that I was going to take art classes and I knew what I was going to major in. But And so I had this professor and he had his studio was connected to the ceramics building. And so it's oftentimes like the ceramics or sculpture facilities, like in its own building that will be separate from the main art building. And so this was that case. And his studio was connected and he would invite you into his studio. So it was the very first time I actually saw what an artist, like an artist making, Yeah, you know, because when you're in the museum, for me, it was just like, who are these people? And you think that they're, (laughs) you know, you think even the contemporary section, you're like, I thought like, oh, but they're all dead. They're not, you know, real. Right. Or how do you do that? Like, it it seems like it's not accessible to just... Just, yeah, it's like a secret process. Exactly. Like, how do you get to do that? And so it was the first time I saw someone who, like, invited me into a studio. He worked there. He would, like, he was so open. And mm. I, when I took classes for him, his name is Ron Kovach, by the way. He's still alive. He's still working. Um, it was the mentorship and the interaction. And then also with my other people who are taking the classes. Mm-hmm. And so that you would have these... I felt like I was having these dialogues in those classes with my peers that I was not having in some of these other lecture-based classes. Or 
like the organic part of it, like the organic conversation. So mm-hmm. your class ends, you all go your separate ways till class begins <laughs> yeah. again, right? <laughs> right. But, you know, in the ceramic studio or in the studio, like specifically, you have to work in the space and you need to use the equipment and you need to be in the space. So all of this, these interactions happen beyond the classroom time. Yeah, I just kind of love that. Like, you know, mm. you bounce off of each other. You build a community. Um, it's like and stimulating. It's really stimulating. Yeah. And then also, like, I saw what being a professor was because I had no, I mean, you know, I knew I was going to go to college, but I had, had no idea about, like, what's the difference between a, a primary and secondary teacher and an art professor? And so it's like, oh, so they you're hired because you're doing like your work, your research, because you know you're good at a certain thing or you yeah. have an interest in a certain thing. And then like they want you to keep doing that and they support you in doing that. And you in theory, yeah. <laughs> ideally, in th- ideally. <laughs> um, and it was a place of like, it's OK to be enthralled with knowledge and like to know and to not like I was just such a voracious reader when mm. I was a kid. Well, when I was an adult, too, I feel like it's going away now. But <laughs> like, yeah, I just always wanted to kind of know. And I didn't always feel like I was always rewarded for being curious. And that seems like a place where you're rewarded for being curious or being excited about not knowing. Yeah, being excited about not knowing, but then also just being able to like pursue whatever your, you know, various interests are, right? In this in this academic like environment. Like, you know, the kind of like the openness to that. And yeah, I really loved college. I mean I I thought it was it was what I thought it was going to be. I think I was kind of scared of it at first because I as a student I was a good student, but I always knew that I wasn't like I wasn't working that hard. And so I thought when I went to college, I was like, oh, they're going to find out, you know, you're not really been working that hard. So and so it's like, oh, so I was kind of like on the defensive like to be challenged to like go to every class and, you know, and yeah, I loved it. Like art history classes, all my classes. I just I really kind of love the like exchange of like information, even those classes that I probably should (laughs) have been more interested in. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. um, Like I found valuable. So I wonder how art, how is art history learning that played into your career as an artist or informed it? So I was an art history major as well. And so, you know, I don't know. It's like, I feel like the interest in art history kind of comes from just growing up in Chicago. So like Chicago is such a, it's like architecturally such an interesting looking city, right? Because mm-hmm. in the way that it's built, like, you know, we had a big fire. And so there was a, you know, they built it on a grid when they rebuilt it. And it's an old city and you see remnants, even in like the, you know, like some places where I grew up and like, you'll look at this, like it's a liquor store now, but then you look up and there's gargoyles on the building because the building is like yeah. 120 years old. Right. So you still have, you have like all these remnants of what it was. And so I just was always as a kid, just like, I loved looking at those things and even in church. So I went to parochial school. So we went to church on Sunday and then you have chapel during the middle of the day. And the things that I think that kept me engaged because you're kind of hearing the same stories over and over again, yeah. uh, was looking at all the relics, like looking all of like the imagery. So like looking at the chalices, looking at the stained glass, looking at like all like the kind of the pageantry of like, I was an acolyte, like you carry this candle, like this metal thing, <laughs> around, you know, so like all of the objects, like I'm just was very engaged with looking and objects and wanting to know how it was made and 
that kind of fed into your relationship with objects now in your work is kind of like seeing the power of these objects and Definitely. what they mean. Exactly. Yeah. And I feel like even the like this idea of like uh, equating some sort of force, I don't know, that being like spiritual or just being symbolic, like to objects, like we give objects power, right? And we give our objects power through routine. So like when I lived in Seattle, like I would only go to a certain FedEx. I had like a routine about like when I would ship my work, like I have to go to this place and I have to do it at this time. And like as if that kind of magical thinking will stop things from breaking. Yeah. And I'm really kind of engaged <laughs> with this idea. <laughs> like, oh, if I ship it from here at this time and do like nothing will break. Um, but this idea of like the magical thinking about like trying to ascribe power to objects to have a sense of control in our lives when you know it's pretty uncontrollable i think even the like the fact that i work with a material that doesn't want to be controlled um is something something says something about my own personality of like wanting to have like exert control you know and so it's always like yeah but then having to let go of and it. And then control. having to let go of it, right? Because, like, you let go through it, like, through the experimentation, and I let go through the failure. And, like, I guess that's what I'm saying, like, that kind of, like, humbling. Like, that's part of it. Like, that pushes me forward. And then it's a place of contemplation for me. So. Yeah, I'm wondering, um, just to back up a little bit or talk about the... Um, I don't think I talked about our history. So, yeah. No. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> we got, I got we way off of that. Yeah, yeah. So I think I was talking about the artist. Too. Oh, yeah. So it's just like going through the museum and, you know, it's a huge museum. So like uh, I felt like I'd go through a room and be like, I've never seen this work before. Was this work here before? And of course it was there before. But I just like for whatever reason, it was now pulling my attention. And so I was very much engaged with like learning the history of those things, like the things that I was seeing and placing it within a um, a time frame. So, mm. you know, what's going on, not only with the artists at that moment, but what's going on in history. Like, you know, if you, you know, look at like Dada and things like that, you're thinking like, oh, there's a war. Okay. So what's happening? You know, what's going on? Like, yeah. oh, okay. So the context. We, yeah, the context, which is really interesting to me mm. about that relationship between artists bringing like being affected because they live in the world and then what happens within the studio especially as you're looking at what we call like these particular genres you know i don't a lot of people weren't writing that you know there were some people writing manifestos but really it's like they're they're playing off of each other but they're not thinking it in a willful way. It's just kind of what's happening because of the influences of the time, right? Yeah, and it's in hindsight that and we it's say, hindsight. oh, it's part of this movement. Exactly, or... exactly. So I think that that's, I was like really fascinated with that part of, I really loved our history. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, sometimes I think about like this moment in time in Austin. Will it be in 50 years, will someone look back and say, oh, that was this movement was happening in Austin in art? Or is everyone just so disparately doing their own thing mm -hmm. you know i don't know i don't know i feel like that you do see threads though right so whether it be you know austin or just like the wider art world i feel like you do see these threads i, I don't know how we describe it exactly now but is there a conversation that you feel like your work is a part of that you're aware of in sculpture I, you know this is a good question i guess i'm i'm thinking I don't know if I would narrow it down to sculpture, um, but I feel like there are black women artists now who, not now, they're not new, <laughs> but 
I just feel like that there's um, a wider like range of seeing what black artists are doing and making. Like it's not one, you know, like it's so it's such a wide range that you your practice can fit kind of anywhere in mm-hmm. a in a way that maybe it felt like you had to be making a a certain kind of work to like fight an audience and i don't feel like that that's necessarily true anymore i feel like that they're like all the different practices um of black artists and can you know can be highly conceptual or it could be figurative or it can be you know realistic or it can be like skirt the lines between the two and then there's a place to have some of these same conversations that's not dependent on the specific genre of what you're making there's overlap there but they don't have you know things don't have to look the same so i just feel like it's kind of like exciting i think the internet really really has done that is that you are connected now with other people's work in a way that you you know I can't even imagine like when I was an undergrad you know I mean it just seems like you saw what you saw because it was in a book already or because you saw that show that was in your particular town you know and I mean I lived in a city so I can't even imagine if like your life in a smaller place, like how much work do you get to see, right? Yeah. But now with the internet, you you get to see what people are making all over the world, which can be great. It could probably be a little overwhelming, but I think it's kind of amazing to see like what people are doing, even though you don't have a physical relation to them and see that there are ideas that are overlapping. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, that, that actually brings me to a question about maybe you could talk about some of the ideas you've explored and some that you're kind of looking forward to exploring. Uh, in current work or previous work? In or? previous work and current and future. I don't know. Because um, there's a lot of, uh, on your website, there are quite a few series mm-hmm. that are beautifully photographed. I really love how well all your work's been documented on your website. It's really nice. Oh, thanks. Um, yeah, I used to have a really great photographer when I lived in Seattle. <laughs> <laughs> I think when I moved, I was like, I was almost like hesitant. Like, will, will I ever find a photographer <laughs> like that for my work ever again? Um, but a lot of it's me as well. So, yeah. So I think that the thread has definitely been the fact that it's it's all sculptural. Um, I'm a 3D, like truly a 3D person. And, you know, the idea and the making of the work kind of happen at the same time. Or maybe like, it's like I can't identify exactly what comes first. but. Yeah. I feel like that I'm pushed forward in the studio through making itself. Um, so, and researching um, is a part of that, but I actually have to have my hands moving. I have to have like, you know, there's, and I'm lucky enough that there's always some sort of tasks, like the most mundane tasks have to happen in um, in my studio, right? So even like there's cleaning or mixing or like, you know, for this show, there's a lot of mixing of uh, mason stains into porcelain to test for the color. So, But it's all through that that I am able to kind of engage the conceptual part of my brain to think about, like, where, where are these ideas coming from? Like, what are the connections? What are the references? And then kind of let that go where it's going to go. Um, and then at the, you know, right now, having this show up, I'm able to start to formulate more concrete language about what those ref- like what are you really doing now like now that I can see it all together yeah. right without all the other things that are in your studio that kind of obstruct your view so having that cube to be able to really look um, so at times the this idea of like the contraption has been a part of my work of taking recognizable 
objects. There was a period of time where I was taking um, throwaway, recycled, uh, like catering plastic and um, reconstructions of natural um, animals and um, objects that were being made in plastic for casting. So things that, you know, like cookie making and like candy making, but then also um, taking um, things that you buy for one-time use. Like, you know, you go and you get, I don't know, cosmetics or something, and then it's in a blister pack, right? So the, the object itself is very small, but it's covered in this plastic. Well, and the plastic is to protect it, but it's also so you can see it. But then you, once you buy the object, you get rid of that and you throw it away. So like you, it's like really one-time use, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when I moved to Seattle from Chicago, that was like the first time I'd lived in a place that was like so naturally beautiful. Like all of a sudden there's mm. like, you have the Pacific Northwest. So you have like these mountains and bridges and the oceans out there somewhere, the sound, right? Uh, and it's just, and it's also green all year, which is different. Right, because it's like raining. It's a lot different than Chicago. It's very different from <laughs> Chicago, right? So it's like I just felt like almost overwhelming, like the first winter I was there, because it's like this continual rain, but then also like everything's still kind of like growing, and so it's just like green and like people don't in the Midwest like your having your lawn in like this perfect little like rectangle or square was really important, and out there they would have like these just like wild gardens yeah. that just look like chaos from from in my brain okay and then you get used to it and you're just like so where's the grass like they're just gonna let it grow like that and so it was so lush um and i think it was the first time i really started thinking about like recycling and mm. protect and thinking about our environment and thinking about like what is my environment so you know when i got there i thought like oh well maybe maybe I, now i'm the kind of person who's really interested in hiking and it's like no you're not. Uh, you do like to look at nature, but you like to look at it from afar. Like you are an urban person. So like as an urban creature, what are the things that you see every day? Well, yeah. the things that I see every day are these particular, like are these objects, right? And so I was working at this college and uh, I was an academic advisor. You know, whenever you have meetings, they would always like, they're always like catered. They were always like catering. And so you'd go into the, like the break room or whatever, and you'd see, Literally, you would be looking out the window and looking at the sound. So it's beautiful, right? And then you turn your head to the left and you would see all this recycling, like catering plastic overflowing out of the recycling bin, like on the floor. And you're just looking at these two things and it just seems like it's it's so different that like, oh, well, we want to... We should take care of that. But look at all this plastic that we have. Like, what's going to happen to this plastic? Um, So I started to, like, collect it and use that to make molds. And then I would start to configure these um, sculptures that I would think of as almost like a new nature. Like, what are the things that make up my Mm. environment? Like, this is what I'm seeing every day. It's like all of this accumulation of this, you know, like the crap that we buy. But also, you know, in particular, that catering plastic which is vacuum formed right so it's made out of a mold like as well to be mass produced and you look around some of the almost think of it like the rondels like there'll be these patterns around the forms and you're like what's that for it's just like to make it look good at that moment but they're really interesting to look at and so transforming those um with like these other representations of like manufactured nature like i would use like rubber ducks and things like that and then making these configurations is like the first time that really thought of the industrial and then making it into the handmade because i would 
make multiples, but then I would be cutting them apart and putting them back together. And then those first body of work in that series were actually airbrushed. So they were airbrushed with acrylic. And so they were, you know, like talking about plastic, but then they looked like plastic because people didn't really know that they, they were like, oh, I don't know what that is. They couldn't um, readily identify as ceramics. Mm. Um, and so there was such a something that was so artificial about it. That moved into another body of work, which uh, started with silence, um, blanking on the exact title, but like one was He is Gone and another one was uh, a Silence. And those were works that I made after uh, the death of my father. And I was kind of making these contraptions for like communications, for communications beyond the everyday, like thinking about like what is the nature of like prayer, like what is like, what is that like, right? Or like making wish or trying to think of like faith as a way in within an object. Like if I could have one more conversation, what would mm. that contraption look like? And so in those, there were uh, some of those manufactured forms that I was using from before. But then there were also like these little things that were about like his life. Like he was very much into football and um, he golfed. And so like all of these kind of forms would come in, but you wouldn't be able to tell exactly what they were right away um, because they're being removed. They're cast, but they've been also removed through the color and the handling and the fact that they've been cut apart into these new forms. Yeah. And so I, you know, I was very much interested in how like how like religion plays into our idea like what's what's what is belief right and so how we use um like faith and belief to give i I don't know so like when i was a kid i thought that steeples were for like if you pray then like the steeples like an antenna oh yeah and like the prayer is going like it's being transmitted outwards right right? and so thinking about like transmissions right and then you know the fact that like you go outside and there's like these antennas of you know we have cell phones and I don't know exactly how they work, but they have to be transmitted. But it's through these towers that are like pinging, right? And they're like picking up these various connections and they're traveling, but you can't see it with your eye, right? And thinking about that idea of like communication versus like when you make a wish or if you make a confession or if you are trying to, you know, you know, you know, people thinking about like you're thinking out loud or any kind of like magical thinking like what could be some sort of form that would move that along right yeah um so very much like like storytelling in this kind of bizarre way um and they had these openings where you could seem like something was being you could hear something like that sound would be transmitted or that you could speak into it um, but the only thing that would make it work is that your belief that it would work, right? Um, and some of those forms were like hung on, on monofilament and they would kind of spin and they would create like this kind of strange environment of like waiting, like you were waiting for something to happen or what's going to happen or this idea of mm. expectation. So um, so all the like the industrial forms have just changed with like context of what. Um, but I think that this idea of like the object as some sort of like religious, like what makes it a religious object is kind of in there embedded a little bit. I'm actually, I just want to back up a little bit. I'm really interested in this idea of, and maybe 
this is what you were saying, mm-hmm. kind of processing your father's death in some way by mm-hmm. creating some artwork. Because mm-hmm. I've had a very similar idea because my dad passed away last year and I have been wanting to do something with that or process that in some way. And I'm just wondering, like, if you found some healing or some solace in working through that and creating that work. And I mean, looking back on that. Um, I think I did. I feel like I, I wasn't living in Chicago. I was living in Seattle. And so um, I wasn't, uh, you know, I was trying to get home. It was kind of, my dad had had a number of illnesses, but he, it's just like his body was so resilient that he would have these like things that should have taken him out that just didn't take him out. And so the way he did pass away was kind of, it was still kind of unexpected. So I was trying to get home. And so I did not make it um, when he passed away. It was very, you know, it was was strange because, like I said, he had had some instances before where we thought that, oh, this might be it. But then he'd survived. And then this last time he didn't. And it just felt like, I don't want to say anticlimactic, but it just felt like, oh, like that's okay. So that's the end, right? And then I, you know, I stay there for a little while and I go back to Seattle. And so I don't have this like day to day like, I have to just go back into my life, right? Yeah. So I'm just going back into my life and just still trying to, like, you're just in a state of, like, you really can't deal with it when it's happening because there's all these things to do, right? So you've got to, like, plan the funeral. Yeah. You've got to let everybody know. You've, you know what I mean? you got to be, try to strong for your, you know, your, my mom and my brother. And, like, you know, there's, like, a lot of kind of in my I am someone who is very much like, I want to solve a problem, right? So mm. I have a series, like, series of tasks. I'm like, this is something that I can do. I can do this task, which is a way of just kind of putting distance between the actual, like the grief, like really letting you it hit you. And I felt like when I, you know, went back, I'm trying to remember if I had a show. I feel like I did have like a deadline, like not, like in the next year or something like that. I think I had shows that were going to be set up. And so I went back into the studio like oh, like immediately. I was also doing this residency. So uh, it was a residency on site where I lived. So I went back in the studio immediately and just the work changed. Mm. Um, I That was the first time the cone was introduced. And I think I already had things that were cones in the studio, but I hadn't used them yet. So I'm still not sure exactly like what came first, this idea of like the mm. conversation or... Or the form, you know what I mean? Or like, what happened? Chicken or egg? You don't, and I'm not sure, but it was appropriate. Did it help? I don't know. I think that I needed to continue to be busy. And so I think that was extremely helpful. But also, I had just seen my dad a couple of weeks, like a month before. Yeah, I think like a month before I had been in Illinois for, I got this honorarium to come give a talk and have an exhibition. And so I came and I did this talk. And then I was, uh, this was in normal Illinois. And then I happened to go to Champaign, Illinois to give a talk there as well, because I was, you know, I was close and, you know, the university like, oh, you want to come here? And that was my alma mater. And so then I went up to Chicago and trained and saw my parents. So I was like trying to get as much as I could out of yeah, this trip. Yeah. And so my dad, he picked me up from the train station and we went to our favorite pizza place. And it was just him and me. And he was asking because my parents are like they they were always supportive. They're, well, they were supportive of me, but they didn't understand what I was doing. So yeah. I think I was always a little bit like, what are you doing? But they were always supportive. Like, you know, she 
she seems to have it figured out. She always has a job. We don't have to support her. We have no idea what this art thing is about. So it would be kind of things like I would, and I don't know if I was always open to sharing because I felt like if I did share, they were confused. And then that would make me frustrated. And it's like, why are you frustrated? And I was like, I don't know. So, so sometimes I just wouldn't talk about it. And so he said, uh, oh, so they, He's like, oh, so you gave this talk and it went well. And I was like, yeah, it went really good. It was like the students were really engaged and it seems to go really well. And he's like, what did they give you? And he was like, I was like, oh, well, they paid for my trip. And he was like, what? They just gave you a couple hundred bucks. And I think that that honorarium was like $1,500 or something. Yeah. And he was so impressed. He was just like, <laughs> what? They gave you how much? Like 15, you know, so it, it was able to quantify what it was for him in a way that I don't think like they like you have a show, but like then what happens? You yeah, know? yeah, right. Um, and so uh, and he was just always just like proud of me. He was just like you. My parents just my mom especially just thought I was like so brave. She's like, you're just going to you're just going to fly to that place. I'm like, yes, I'm just going <laughs> to buy a ticket and fly by yourself. Yes, I'm just going to do it by myself. And so we were very much like resolved. You know, uh-huh. like our relationship, like I knew, like we always said, you know, we loved each other. Like there was nothing, there was really nothing really unsaid. Yeah. That was kind of different. But still, even after you died and, you know, going through your parents' paperwork, there are things that you wished you had asked mm-hmm. or things that you, you wanted to know that you, you don't get to know now. Yeah. Uh, and also my relationship was different than I think my, my brother's relationships where maybe they wish they had said things that they didn't get to say. So I felt like really fortunate that. You know, we were like in a great place and nothing was left, quote unquote, unsaid. But even with that, I still like I still like how connections, what happens next, you know? So is that where the cones kind of come in, this kind of thinking about transmission or? Exactly. Thinking about like transmission, um, being like what's being received, what's going out. Um, also thinking, I mean, I didn't grow up Catholic, but I always thought there was something really interesting about this idea of confession, that, like what you're going to tell another person and then that person's going to tell God, like what? So, like, <laughs> you know, just thinking about like conversations, thinking about, you know, talismans and thinking about the way that like we give power to objects and expectations and like silence and contemplation, like absurdity, because these things were very like absurd looking as well. Mm-hmm. Um uh, and then reconfiguring. So what the objects originally were versus what are they doing now in the space? So that's always been a kind of part of the work too, like what it was and what is it now? Yeah. And like what what's like what's left and what's what's new, you know? Are you ever surprised by the associations people make with your work when they see them? I think at the beginning there you know, when I started these body work, people would tell me things like like there seemed like they should be hats or I want to, there was a lot of like, I want to eat your work because I was, okay. I was doing, yeah. So, so like this earlier body of work, I was using a lot of like uh piping, like I was taking uh porcelain and putting it through um, like an extruder. So like cake icing and things like that. Yeah. And so even when that went away, there was a lot of people like, I want to touch, I want to lick, I want to smell, like, like I want like something very um, tactile. And I think that that, the tactility has always remained. And also this, what I did not, uh, one thing that I got from people saying that they really want to touch and they can't touch mm. and they're being denied that and they don't like it, you know, or, you know what I mean? Like there's like, and I was like, oh yeah. So it's a little bit unsatisfying because it's something that you're seeing, but you also want to touch, but you can't. So there's something <laughs> unsatisfying. 
This I just want to reference this really quickly. I love this um, sentence from your website also that might kind of enhance what you're talking about, this tactile aspect of your work. Sculptures are meticulously layered with extruded clay, creating surfaces of bulbous dots, spikes, drips, piping, beads, incised and sgraffito lines, inlay, stipples, and pits. <laughs> yes. That <laughs> was that list. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what happens. Uh, because I'm working with clay and it can be made into a slip, a casting slip, which is basically deflocculated clay. So basically the, the molecules are just kind of suspended so that when you pour it into a plaster mold, it can also be poured out and you can keep the, like the longer the casting slip stays within a plaster mold, a, a skin is formed. The longer it stays in the plaster mold, the plaster is porous, so it's sucking out the water. And so the longer it stays in, the thicker that skin becomes. And then you pour out the rest and then you have the skin, right? Yeah. But then what you can also do with it is let it, I, you know, I would take dried clay, dried porcelain, and then like mix it like in a mixer so that it becomes like frosting. And so then that's another form that can be like another way it can be extruded. But then I can also just put it in a trailing bottle as a liquid. And then I make these individual beads that I would like add out of clay. Yeah. Or you can carve or you can add. So it's like this push-pull with the surface is that like the form is made, but that's not all like that happens. It's like the layering part is really kind of important to me. This like push-pull of like pulling away from the surface through carving and then adding to the surface. So there's a lot of additions of different kinds of like states of clay versus some clay being very, very wet. And some of it being drier as it's added. So I was wondering if you if you think it might be helpful just to speak about the process of making these porcelain sculptures, maybe. I don't even have, I have no <laughs> I have idea. No idea yeah. <laughs> um, so the ones that I'm like in the currently in the studio, the currently in this space, um, I'm using a casting slip that I use, which is porcelain. The cone form is still there and most of them all but one. And so I was casting that form, but then also taking ball moss and um, steel wool and wire and dipping the ball moss into casting slip and then pouring it on top as well and like creating a surface of layers on top of that organic material, hanging them and letting them dry. And then depending, you know, there was kind of a bunch of different things going on. So sometimes I would go ahead and fire the cones once, what we call a bisque fire, but I had put drilled holes into them so that I could use the wire as like an armature within the forms. Mm -hmm. um, some are not fired. And so the ball moss is going directly onto forms that are not fired. Sometimes the ball moss is completely what we call leather hard. So it's not fired, but it's completely dry. And I would drill into it and um, attach it with wire. And sometimes I'm dipping them, letting them get just enough of a, like a skin for adhesion, right? And then putting them directly onto the pieces onto wire. So when you look out there and some of the forms are going to be, the tendrils are going to be really accentuated. Like you can feel like you can see a lot of like details of that form. And in other places, it kind of transforms and it's like feels thicker or heavier or, or, or more transformed from the ball moss and just depends on when I'm applying. So when the forms are 
dipped, they, you know, the ball moss is really, it gets really heavy. And so putting them onto these forms that are oftentimes like just sort of a fourth of an inch thick, how the weight will be distributed once it's fired is kind of unknown to me. So I know that they're going to warp and change depending on how much weight is put on. But I can't tell you, I, I, I don't know exactly how. And so that's the part of this work that's probably different from some of the other work where it's like, more spontaneity takes place so that as I'm building in wet clay, I'm building these forms up, these sculptures up, and then taking them and putting them into a kiln and then firing them. They're going to shrink. They're going to shift. A lot of them like are falling over. Some of the ball moss, like these forms are now going to shed off to the surface and or shift to the sides. Sometimes the shifting is going to happen with the wire. Sometimes they're going to come come completely up apart in places. And so when I open the kiln, I don't know exactly what it's going to look like until I open it, right? For some of these pieces, they're going through two firings, meaning I'm like this firing them, which is the first initial firing to kind of harden it and get rid of any impurities. And then you're taking that out and then adding color. And for me, adding color is coloring the clay itself and using that when it's still unfired, and then also using what we call underglaze, which is just a highly uh, refined clay that uh, has pigment added to it. So, you know, in some ways, it's kind of close to the paint, but like it doesn't, it still is going to change during firing. And so it doesn't have any glass in it. So I'm not using any glazes. It's basically all colored clay. In those particular ones, I would um, I use a sprayer and I spray these layers of underglaze and then fire them a second time. And then some of them, I'm doing everything at wet clay. So I'm pigmenting the clay body, dipping them, adding them, brushing them, spraying them, and then firing them only once. And so those even have more of a like what's going to happen because I don't see it again until it's, you know, and I'm yeah. over firing the work too. So these are... Um, Cone seven uh, is the clay body, and I'm firing it to about cone nine. So I'm like over firing the maturity of that clay body is um, to get the hardness of that. And also to, you know, it increases the chances of spontaneity Hmm. because it's going to warp more. And because it's porcelain, it's got a lot of glass in it. It's much more pure of a clay body. It has less filler. So the shine that you see is actually the melting of the porcelain itself that's changing the color, the color of the clay, right? Because the clay itself has glass in it. And so, yeah, so that's what you're seeing. Is that, I don't know if that, any yeah. of that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of. Kind of, sort of, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd love to see it in person sometime. I think it's really interesting, the choice of the ball moss, because it's not a functional object at all. It's like something that a lot of people don't even really know what it is or why what it's doing. But I love that I had read, you know, you were saying that the ball moss is not killing the trees, but it's thriving on trees that are already dying. And that you were kind of relating that to what's happening today in our society and culture. Like, I'm wondering if you could speak to that. Yeah, I mean, I probably can't speak to it well because I feel like I said, like, just the show just opened and it's yeah, like, still yeah, yeah. formulating language. But 
you know, wherever I have moved, and I've had a couple, have a couple moves across the country um, for my job. You know, I'm influenced by the place or like the, my whatever my immediate experiences are. And so, like I was saying, when I moved to Seattle, like it changed my work because it's like, yeah. oh, I thought I was going to be. It made me realize, like, oh, I'm much. I'm an urban person, right? And like, what is my relationship to nature? Is very like standoffish, right? And then here was just walking around St. Ed's campus where I teach and like seeing these trees covered in this material. I didn't even know what it was at first. Um, And then you'd see some trees like just completely covered and you're like, oh, that tree is dying. And it seems like, oh, is that a parasite? It must be a parasite. It's taken over the tree and it's killing the trees. And like, why don't they get it off of them? And then you see other trees that aren't dying, but you can see like them starting to form. And so it just was like something that I would see at the corner of my eye. And at times thinking like, oh, it's, and at times it would draw my eye. And sometimes it's like kind of invisible, you know, it's like just continuous and it's unseen. And so when I started really looking at it and I like, I looked it up, like, what is this parasite? And it's like, oh, it's not a parasite. It's an air plant. And the air plant will take over it. You know, it likes to grow where there's not, a lot of leaves where there's not going to be a lot of leaves is where there's not going to be like, like a lot of sunlight. And so if uh, a lot of sunlight is not going to also hit it. So the trees that were already ill would have more of the ball moss. So it seems like an external problem, but it's really internal. And I don't know if I think for like the last, I don't know, how long has it been since <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ, the, uh, <laughs> for, for us, like even before the election, but just like all the run up to the election, right? So like the presidential election, it's just like, uh, well, even before then it was, it was, you know, the internet now allows us to both know and not know in a completely different ways. So there mm. were all of these, you know, all of the police brutality that black and brown people always said were happening and people say it weren't other people said it wasn't happening. Now we have it on tape, right? And even with that, like you have people denying the experience of what they see with their own eyes, right? And so just this kind of now that like you are, you can see, you know, these things that you know, but now you can see them and repeat it over and over again of like oppression and like death and like white supremacy at its finest. Um, mm-hmm. And then how, you know, within that, you know, the, the rhetoric of the country has like has been i think some people say uncivil but out you know this thinking of it being new like this idea like all of these things are new like this there's always you know they call it white nationalism now it it's all it's all the clan to me. It's like all the same. It's all the same impression that's already always been in this country. That's not new. It's always been here. But this idea that you, you know, that people say like, oh, this is not who we are. These situations, we've never seen these situations before. It must be because of this other person has come into office. That's why these things are happening. It's like, no, it's not new. It may seem like it's ramped up or it's louder, but it's it's like embedded in this country. It's like always here, right? And it's like so, feeding off of it. It's like maybe the it's dying tree. Yeah, is... maybe it's feeding off of it, but like it's not the external. It's not the problem. It's mm. it's internal, and we don't deal with the internal. And also, it just seems like uncontrollable. Like that ball moss seems like literally uncontrollable, um, and random. About like one tree next to it will have not almost nothing, and then the next tree will be inundated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, 
it seemed to be like a, a nice visualization of anxiety or maybe the anxiety that I've been feeling, um, like being inundated. Also, is like, is it camouflage or is it destructive or is not destructive? Is it taking over? Is it not taking over? What is the tension, the push and pull between the two, right? And so thinking about that and, and becoming symbolic for me is the way that like people continuously, um, people protesting and fighting against what continuously needs to be needs to be um, addressed. And sometimes it makes you make lots of strides and sometimes you make little strides. So D. Ray um, McCannison has been here a couple of times. And I remember he came and he was uh, saw him a couple of years ago. So right after the maybe right after the election, he was saying, well, you know, there was a time like, you know, before we thought that we'd been laying the groundwork for to make some real strides forward through the movement, through these various movements. But now it looks like we're, we're probably going to take a couple of steps back and maybe the strides forward are not going to be strides, but baby steps. Or maybe it's just going to be just trying to maintain. Right. Mm. And that's always the like the thing is like the push pull, the tension between like who is on top and who is not. And sometimes standing still as long as you're, you're you're standing still it could be as powerful as just not being moved back you know mm-hmm. but it's really hard to see and it's really difficult to kind of quantify that as a win right um but sometimes that's what it's like it's like the and sometimes you you can see real change and sometimes that it may be minuscule and so thinking about the using the cone form um, as these kind of, they're you know they're definitely closer to the hoods, the Ku Klux Klan hoods in this particular show, you know the ball moss kind of being resistance in some ways, and so like are the forms being altered? Are they withstanding? Are they being destroyed? In some cases, they're clearly are destroyed. Sometimes that they're you know they are, seem to be withstanding. The, like the weights of the forms that are on top of them. Sometimes they're um, being changed in subtle ways and sometimes in big ways, right? So what's happening between like these two opposing um, forces within the forms themselves? So sometimes it's camouflage. Sometimes I feel like that they're being, you know, they are completely taking over and obscuring and then maybe even changing the form that's underneath it because you don't almost have no access to that original form underneath and sometimes you see it's still peeking through it's still going to be there it's still even when you don't see it it's still there so all of the forms have that cone except for like one and these are things that you thought about throughout the process of making the work or you're kind of seeing it now or it was all it's all kind of connected yeah i feel like it's just it's kind of it's all like swirling around there right so trying to figure out like okay again like what is it first is it the ball moss first or is it those these all these things that i'm saying that the ball moss represented for me like right away like what when if that happened i can't tell you exactly when that i don't know exactly when they happened but i know that it worked itself out in the studio like you know what i mean like i I'm thinking about these things and then I guess I can know. Like, so I feel like I'm thinking about these things and I'm looking for something that represents or is like, can be co-opted to represent these things that I'm thinking about or, you know, but not in such a literal way. It doesn't have to, it's fine for me that like other people, you know, don't, they might not get all of those. They're not going to get all those references because those, that's all like the noise that's in my head. But I think this sense of the uncomfortable this being drawn to 
like being drawn to the work and both being like drawn to like, you know, the beauty and the grotesque because it's both in there and them having in some ways like they're being equal because, you know, they are kind of equal. Like you look at something that's beautiful as long as you look at as much as you look at something that's grotesque. They kind of they're opposites, but they're on the same plane. Right. Um, and so there being the sense of like the uncomfortable seeing like these like little tendrils come together and they're at times seem to be like working together, but then also like clashing against each other, being like forced, like being pushed apart or being connected. So I think that you can like these visual kind of cues enter into the work. Um, And I'm trying to find like the visual cues that can kind of put all of this chaos into order for me. And so through the studio, what to do with all the noise. And this is what comes out of the noise for me. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah, it does. Totally. I was wondering if maybe you could speak a little bit about teaching and what you teach and what it's like to work with young artists and what you're trying to instill in them or share with them that you've learned. Yeah, I think that like, um, I actually, I love to teach and I really thought of like I was inching my way towards teaching by like first my first entry into the college uh, as a job was actually I was an academic advisor a job that I did for like a number of years and then I started sending out applications for for teaching but you know I really do believe in higher education there's a lot of talk about like what is the one-to-one ratio as far as you getting a job but I feel like Yes, it's important. People have to be able to like make a living and that's important. And it is important to have a college education. And, you know, you can look at all the statistics about like how it improves your life, how we can improve your life, like financially, right over time. But for me, it was, it's really, I, th- I think I'm just like at its core, this time of making a transition from being a, a teenager to an adult for like the most people, right? But then this like way of like knowing to just like have time to be guided into thinking in a wider way to have like the exposure to people that you would never have exposure to right so your students your your pair like my students are from all over the world and all kind of different lifestyles and backgrounds and it really keeps me empathetic like I just you know when you're talking in the abstract about human rights it's it's you know it's one thing but then it's something different when you are you know you have a student who is trans right or um having students who are refugees or whose parents are farm workers or whose parents may be undocumented or you know all the different things students who have disabilities um you know students who have dealt with trauma that you can even imagine i've had students through my teaching career who have been vets and it's been very you know, it's made me think about my life in different ways and my actions in different ways that mm-hmm. I don't think I might not have had access to because you're continuously being surrounded with all of these different people that you might not necessarily come into contact with on a daily basis. And it's always changing, right? And so I really find that teaching is part of my practice is that these conversations that I'm having with students are the you know, things that I'm telling them are the things that I have to remind myself like, oh, yes, yeah, so you're telling them to do this. You also have to do this. So it kind of keeps me honest. And I like the give and take of that and the way that it is a place of 
um, continual inquiry, I think is, is, is important to me. So I teach ceramics and hand building, uh, throwing, and I also teach advanced ceramics, which is usually more independent study classes with students. And um, I teach sculpture. And then lately, for the last couple of years, I've taught this freshman studies class called Art and Activism, which mm. is in this um, social justice, what we call living learning communities, LLCs, where students take these classes. They get to pick out of their modules and they take these classes and they live in the same, they don't like to call it dorms, but I'm still calling them dorms. Uh, they live <laughs> in these dorms together and they take these classes together. And it's this way for them to build community over time. Mm. And so the... Uh, art and activism has been really interesting. I'm mostly concentrating on artists who are um, very specifically working in social practice and identify a particular political, you know, cultural, social view in their activism through their work. Artists that are not ambiguous, like myself, <laughs> in, their, in their work. And so it's been great because these students are not necessarily art majors. This is open to, I, love, uh, I teach at a liberal arts university, and so it's open to um, students across campus that are freshmen. And so this might be their first foray into learning about these different kind of artists, artists that are often like their work doesn't look like traditional white cube work. And I think my favorite part is at the end of the, towards the end of the semester, they do presentations on um, social practice artists or activists that they pick. Hmm. And I know that the people that they pick towards the end of the semester would not be the same people they would pick at the beginning of the semester. And you can kind of see how it both introduces them to not only artists that worked as in this kind of realm of activism, but also conceptual artists. Because I think sometimes you know, people can be intimidated by conceptual art because you do have to do a little bit of legwork, right? And yeah. try to find an entry point. And this is a way for them to find that entry point into that kind of work and not to be intimidated by it. And what's really important to me is that we don't start with whether you like it or not. We start with critiquing the work. So coming up with a hierarchy of how to talk about it. So what does it look like? Why is the artist using the like the material or the the ideas that they're using? What is the interpretation about that kind of work? And then lastly, do you like it or you don't like it, right? So it's just this, having this understanding about the artist's like the process and then the potential of the work and then how the work is viewed, what the work does, where does it live, and thinking about how a lot of these artists are working in ways. So just for instance, just in our, you know, our backyard, we have like Project Row House. So I have students who are from Houston. And like, have you ever heard of Project Row House? Do you know who... Um, you know, Rick Lowe is. I don't. And uh, do you not know? Yeah. No. So Rick Lowe is a, a social practice artist. And so uh, in Austin, in the Third Ward, he, um, along with two other artists, they were asked about this two blocks of shotgun houses that were um, sitting empty and kind of derelict. And like, what should they do there? And so his idea was that, like, you don't knock them down, but you rehab them. And so he rehabbed these homes. And so it functions both as an art gallery. Um, so you can go into the individual homes and there'll be installations and exhibition space there. But then also, how does this art transform or how does it make an impact on the neighborhood, but being of the neighborhood, not being separate? And so keeping the houses, the shotgun houses, the same architecture that's there, 
keeping that. And also they have things like tutoring that they do. He's helped um, local community members um, start their own businesses. So there's a woman who had taken laundry and she just kind of had like a kind of like a like a cart that she would use and how to turn that into like a bigger business for her or having houses that are also kept for single parents, um, single mothers program where they can live there. I think it's like almost no cost for like a year to two years. And so how do you and then also they're thinking about the fact that, okay, now you have this art institution there. What happens next? Well, we know what happens next is gentrification, because if you look at where this neighborhood is, you can see downtown from where it is. So they've also been doing things like buying up the land around available land around Project Row House and then building um, kind of these model homes of what they would like the homes to look like if people come in to buy homes that will still speak to the architecture that is already there. And so if they want to, like if they would ever sell that land, they'd say like, well, these, this is what we want, whatever you build to look like this. Right. So that you're not completely erasing the history of this neighborhood. And then also just keeping some of that land as just like open space. Right. And so being able to understand that you as a function of an art institution coming in is also changing the neighborhood. And what is your responsibility for that? And so all of these things like the tutoring, they do fellowships for um, undergraduate art students as well. Like all of that is happening at Project Row House in Houston, which is two hours, you know, two and a half hours away. And so, yeah, I really kind of love teaching that class because it it kind of like expands. I learn things, the students learn things, and it really kind of expands what what art can do. It seems like worldwide, it can be a powerful force for change. I don't know. I just, I do hear a lot of positive stories about what artists do in communities, and it's pretty inspiring. Yeah, definitely can be. And I think that it doesn't have to all be one way. Like everyone doesn't have to be, you know, so specifically a social practice. Everyone's not going to be Riglo, uh, MacArthur winner. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there are like multiple ways for people to enter into this idea of, of having, so thinking outside of their individual experience through um, an artwork, right? And so that can be on the micro level or that can be on the macro level, right? And so everyone's experience is kind of like valid within, I think, the in the studio. But I do love that, like, you know, I think that, you know, what social practice artists are doing that are working outside of the institutions is that, that they have a much wider reach to audiences um, than, you know, for instance, my show, there's going to be a very particular group of people who are going to see it. And there's, you know, there's some, some, some limitations on how many people are going to come into the space and when they're going to come. So, you know, it's something that I'm thinking about, like, what is this expansion that happens beyond the gallery space? And I don't know what that looks like yet. I feel like that cage match project was probably something that's piqued this idea on me about what, what happens next or what changes in the process or what's, you know, what's added to the process. So... Well, I would highly recommend anyone that's in Austin before January 10th to come see the show. And there's a couple of other events around the show, right? Yeah. So there's a, so on December 8th, starting at two, there's a actress. Her name is Deja Morgan. She was in uh, Monroe. She was a lead actress in Monroe, that play by Lisa Thompson. Um, she's also a St. Ed student. This is actually her last semester. She's going to do a performance. So she's writing a piece. Um, 
in kind of in relation to the show, but it's very much um, an individual experience of hers that she's going to do like a, a short performance, like a monologue. And that's December 8th. And then my gallery talk is January 5th from 1130 to 1230. And I guess kind of the ending closing of the show. Not quite. It's another week after that. But yeah. everybody will be back from the New Year celebrations yeah. <laughs> and all of that. So that'll be the gallery talk. Well, thanks for your time, Tammy. I really enjoyed uh, hearing about your work. And well, thanks, Scott, teaching. for coming. I appreciate you coming and talking. <laughs> in this little room. In this little room that we're in. So <laughs> we're in like the, we're at Women at Work. We're in, I guess this is a storage closet. <laughs> so we wanted to make sure we had good sound. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Nice. But it worked. <laughs> it, it worked. Well, thanks. All right. Thank you. Thanks for listening. One more thing before you go. If this episode or any other I've produced have helped you or added value to your life, please support the podcast so it can continue and grow. Just go to austinarttalk.com forward slash support. There you can find a link to my Patreon page and there is also a PayPal option and an Amazon affiliate link. I couldn't keep doing this without your help. All the best to you and take care. Take care.